Simple Beep, episode 68, Haxies. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And on today's show, we're going to finally get to one of the topics that I think has been kicking around in uh, our topic list, maybe since the beginning of the show. Uh, It's been in there for a while that we've wanted to do this. And it's an interesting topic because it kind of gets at the painful transition between the classic Mac and OS X. And we'll get to that in a moment, but first we have some follow-up. Speaking about things that go back to uh, the beginning of the show, uh, this past month, I had a little interview piece uh, in the 512 Pixels newsletter. This is from friend of the show Stephen Hackett's website, 512 Pixels. He also has a monthly subscription, and you can get a newsletter that goes along with that. Uh, you pay very fittingly, the price of $5.12 per month. (laughs) Um, And I have a little interview in there. And he asked us some questions about how this show got started. So if you want some additional behind the scenes, uh, I would suggest going supporting Stephen because uh, we like a lot of the stuff that he does. uh, And you'll also be able to check that out. It's one of those things where uh, if you sign up now, you get all the back issues. So uh, if you haven't checked it out before, it's probably, probably worth your while. Another piece of follow-up from an episode a while back about Apple Museums, our episode number 59. One of the museums that I don't know if we directly covered in that episode, the Apple Museum in Poland, recently uh, came into possession of a Basis 108 machine, 108. And this is cool in many ways, but I think most notably because it is an Apple II clone. We've talked a lot about clones on this show, but we're always talking about the Macintosh OS clones of the mid to late 1990s. And this was really cool to see that uh, cloning Apple computers went all the way back to the Apple II as well. Yeah, it's interesting that there was that time period there where that could actually happen. It makes sense that, um, you know, if you go back to something like the Apple One, you know, it was such a homebrew type of kit that uh, there wasn't really much secret to it. You just needed to have the right chips in the right place. Um, So it was interesting that people were trying to do that with the Apple II. And I think that this one, uh, they said that it had some interesting features. Like It had like a super heavy-duty case um, and maybe not some of the design features that you would expect uh, from the first-party Apple II. And I think the disk drives were one of the things that was very hard to change. I I think if you look at the pictures, it's just got the regular Apple disk drives mounted right in the case because they had to kind of had to buy those off the shelf and couldn't recreate them. I was going to mention that as well. Uh, In these photos of the Basis 108, you see the caption saying like, this is an Apple II clone, but you look at it and say, there are a couple six color Apple logos plastered right on it. How could this be a clone? And yet it's because these are logos on the disk drive. And I think one is on the keyboard as well. Yeah, it's interesting the lengths that people would go to to get an Apple II. And of course, at various points in history, people have been motivated to make clones for the simple reason that like, when it's early in a company or a product's existence, sometimes they aren't distributed there and you have to make your own to, to even get it in that part of the world. Yeah, I think it might actually be uh, right on the money because I was looking for information about the Basis 108 and there is a Wikipedia article uh, about that model of computer, but there is no English translation of it. I think the master uh, <laughs> entry was written in German. 
So maybe that's where this machine came from. So now on to our topic for this episode. And like I said, this is something that I think really gets to the heart of the OS 9 to OS 10 transition. And so we left it out in some of our earliest episodes because we were trying to focus mostly on the classic Mac, uh, you know, pre-OS 10. But now we've got to the point where we have plenty of hindsight for the OS 10 era itself. And we've talked in sort of abstract terms about what that meant for Apple products, for marketing, and for Apple users as they made their way through this transition. But one of the things that you may get the impression of uh, when you're listening to current Apple news is like, people are upset that Apple have changed things. and Or like, people are upset that a feature is missing from an Apple product. And that definitely happened around that time where there was just a huge change in how you were expected to use a Mac, even though it was still a Mac. And you would think that this would be sort of a a community aspect or something that would just be like, like I said, we've talked about it in generalities, just sort of a general undercurrent of what was going on in 2001 as people were starting to pick up OS X and use apps in Classic and try to move over and get their work done totally in the OS X environment. But the interesting thing about this story is that it really gets wrapped up a lot in just a single company, like a single, almost like an indie developer, a very small software company. And that company is called, or was called, Unsanity. Their tagline was Unsane Tools for Insane People. So they were a little bit quirky. And later they changed that to For Insanely Great People, with, of course, the reference to Steve Jobs quotes and and Apple lore. Um, So this company came up with some of the very first hacks for OS X, and their goals with these hacks really transformed over time, but it was a lot about what people wanted to do with their Macs that they just weren't able to do before. And that's what Unsanity was most famous for, but they did exist in the OS 9 era, well, you know, pre-OS 10 era, and had some products that maybe you remember from then. We'll put a link in the show notes to one of the co-founders of Unsanity, Slava Karpenko. He joined a development, he's still developing for Apple products, I think more iOS than Mac these days, and he joined the development shop Wildbit in the year 2015, and they wrote a blog post introducing him uh, to the world as one of their new employees, and in it he talks about how you know he was a developer, he was kind of raised in developing on the Mac Plus and HyperCard, a story that a lot of us share. And then he was on IRC in the late 1990s and met Dmitry Boldriev, who was working on Mac Amp, the, the Mac port of Winamp, an MP3 player. And pretty much the first MP3 player for the Mac, as I recall. And it sounds like right around the time that Mac Amp 1.0 was released, Dmitry uh, could no longer work on it. So he kind of handed that over back to Slava. And Slava, in his words, said, This begins the era where I was stuck making various MP3 audio players that lasted from 1998 to 2002. Mac Amp, Mac Ast, Mac Amp Lite, and then two programs that were released under the Unsanity corporate umbrella, Echo and Mint Audio. Echo 
uh, I had no recollection of this program, but uh, looking at its pages on Unsanity's Wayback Machine, it seems to be a little bit in the Audion camp of like lots of support for different file formats, uh, playlist support that kind of mirrors your Finder folder structure, and uh, visualizers and skins. Yeah, I definitely remember the Unsanity Echo name, and I remember this sort of default look that you can see in some of the screenshots that are preserved in the Wayback Machine archive of the Unsanity website, where there's sort of this default view that is like a blue oval. And I would say that it was probably, you know, like the third running Mac MP3 player at that time where you had Audion, you had SoundJam, which were sort of like big indie and more commercial. And then Unsanity was the little little indie guy uh, who wound up being probably wound up being an also ran not because it lost out in the you know iTunes versus the rest war, but um, more because Unsanity actually moved on to this other area. One thing you said that it had lots of uh, lots of different file format yeah. support in Unsanity, and there's there's one line on on their product description of it that I find you know just delightful in hindsight, which is that it quote supports the much-anticipated Aug Vorbis format. <laughs> uh, and then Mint Audio, the I think the last MP3-related software program that uh, Slava slash Unsanity released, was, uh, to me, very reminiscent of MacAmp Lite, or Malt, as uh, users from the late 1990s might remember it, in that uh, they were both minimized mp3 players that maybe on the back end for playlist control and different plugins and uh, file format support the same as the fuller featured echo and Audion and sound jam but it was basically just their player window and any skins that might alter its appearance were kind of the size and shape of a control strip <laughs> and um, in remembering all of this and finding out that slava worked on all of these programs i wondered if there's a story maybe dealing with the the IP in the MacAmp slash WinAmp slash MacAst naming rights that would explain why he worked on the kind of uh, first party named uh, MP3 playing apps and then made versions that at least looked similar from these uh, Internet Archive pages, if not actually were similar, uh, released by his own company under different names. There might be a, a kind of interesting counterpoint to Panic's Audion story going on here that uh, I wasn't able to find out anymore, but maybe someone out there knows. Yeah, it's definitely all of a piece in this era. The, you know, these these two products actually spanned the pre-iTunes and post-iTunes era, and uh, I, I was going kind of very meticulously through Wayback Pages, where you can page capture by capture uh, if you have the patience for it. Uh, and notice that because I wanted to see how Unsanity was adding products one at a time. And I noticed that at some point after iTunes started to take off, the uh, pricing, because these were like shareware apps, the pricing for Echo especially dropped significantly. It was like it used to be like a twenty dollar app, and they're like seven dollars. I don't know, five dollars. Anything you'll give me for it, because <laughs> you all have iTunes now. Yeah, can't compete with free 
and first party. I think that was also part of the reason for Mint's existence was that it was trying to do something different than iTunes. It was deliberately minimalist, where everyone went, okay, I get it. Like Apple now has a first party solution for the full on music library approach to playing music, but not everybody needed that or wanted that. Uh, so it was it was a good try, but I think that everyone, as we now know, and as we've seen things transition through the iPod era, the iTunes era, and into the streaming era, that people really do want, if not uh, all of the world's songs, they want a big library. But we're not here on this episode to talk about Unsanity's audio playing programs. We're here to talk about their wide variety of things masquerading as programs, but are really hacks to your system to make it, like Ed said, uh, function and in some cases appear differently. Yeah, I think the charitable term that you could use for these would be utilities, right? I mean, they are all single purpose utilities, but the thing that made them famous and infamous and unified the way that they worked is how they got their hooks into the system in the early OS 10 days. And part, you know, part of the thing that was the transition here was the fact that people coming from Mac OS 8 or Mac OS 9 were used to installing lots and lots of extensions and dealing with all of the fallout that came with that. But that was just part of owning, maintaining, and using a Mac. If you wanted your Mac to be most useful, you were going to have dozens of extensions, and you tried to make it not hundreds of extensions, and you tried to figure out which ones were actually compatible with each other and eliminate ones that were superfluous to you, because otherwise you were going to have a really crashy, sad system. But there were so many things where extensions were just required, and really, you know, opened up lots of great functionality, like um, thinking about extensions that I ran, you know, like the Kaleidoscope extension that allowed you to actually double-click a Kaleidoscope scheme and then the whole, you know, every piece of UI on the screen would change. Obviously, that was like going in and doing a lot with, you know, the window manager as it was. Yeah. And just, you know, like how everything was being drawn on screen was just being dynamically, uh, you know, and unsafely uh, changed on the fly by those extensions. And then when Apple announced OS 10, you know, sort of showed their intentions of how they were bringing a Next-like Unix-based system over, people said, well, what's the equivalent of extensions going to be? How are we going to do all of these wonderful things that uh, we used to do on our Macs exclusively through enabled through extensions? And the straightforward answer was, well, OS X has no extensions. And the less straightforward answer was, psst, hey, have you heard of kernel extensions? It's got extension right in the name. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was not the kind of thing that was supposed to be really even accessible if used by a typical user, as opposed to the classic model where... You know, you got to the point in, what was it, System 7.5, where you could drag an extension onto the system folder and it would say, hey, this is an extension, would you like to enable it? It was a very different model, even if the system was extensible. So 
these little apps were considered hacks. And this is how they got their name. So from marketing copy on the Unsanity site, they said that we call them hacksies. So mix hack with the X from Mac OS X and you'll get hacksy. Interestingly, though, you know, they, they got a reputation uh, from the same marketing copy. Mac OS X may be great, fast, stable, and useful, but sometimes you surely will need a feature or two added. And, well, I suppose that means that you are more concerned with useful because you may be sacrificing great, fast, and stable by installing a hacksy. Yes. <laughs> we'll get to that a little bit. Um, but this name stuck. Um, I mean, it's a cute, clever name. Um, I didn't even really quite recognize the etymology of it, even though they put it right there on their website. People just came to know that these little system hacks that worked differently than they used to in the classic Mac, but did cool things on OS X, were called hacksies. And interestingly, later in Unsanity's existence, they got defensive about this. And so like in the footer of their website, it started saying things like the term hacksy is a trademark of Unsanity LLC, even though they like never registered it, at least not in the United States, even though they were based in the US. And like they were they were very sort of um, faux litigious about this, um, where they wanted to keep other people off of the Haxi name, even though at that point it had gotten a pretty bad name, uh, which is which is really interesting. But like I said, this this concept and this company were really wrapped up in one. So talking about some of these first Unsanity Haxies, like Ed said, this happened around the transition from the classic Mac OS to Mac OS X. And you can see that in a lot of the their first initial run of Haxies were basically to make elements of Mac OS X look and or feel like the classic Mac OS we were leaving behind. And perhaps the most notable of all of these was a Haxie called Window Shade 10, where 10 is represented as the letter X. Uh, one reason this is notable is that it was shareware. Um, shareware <laughs> also kind of seems now like one of the relics from the classic Mac OS uh, as opposed to these kind of freemium try before you buy uh, <laughs> software that is a whole other discussion whenever we tackle the Mac App Store. But yeah, it was $7 shareware. And like its name suggests, it aimed to restore the window shade, uh, like title bar collapsing that was introduced in Mac OS 8 and then removed in OS 10 for <laughs> in favor of the, the much demoed um, graphics card taxing genie effect minimizing a window as it uh, slurps down into a spot in the dock. So one of the interesting things about this is, and, and I find it a little bit ironic, is just the, the way that Window Shade 10 came around, is that the original Window Shade was a classic Mac extension, and I believe it was either freeware or shareware. And it was completely unaffiliated with the people at Unsanity. It was a different person who wrote wrote Window Shade. It became extremely popular. And then in the transition from System 7 to OS 8, it got turned into a first-party feature where, and I, I think that was actually bought out by Apple, not just pure, purely Sherlocked. Um, I think they actually bought the code from Window Shade. And in System 7 to to roll up the shade of a window, you would double click on the title bar and the window would collapse to just the title bar. And then in OS 8, 
the actual minimize window shade widget was added as the third control on pretty much every window in the system. Then in OS X, you preserved the three controls, moved them all over to the one side, made them a stoplight, which uh, irked a lot of people. And then the behavior of the minimization was changed. Um, But it was kind of funny, though, that I think that it started off as like a third-party extension that totally changes the behavior of Windows. And then Apple said that was a great idea, and then they changed it to something else. And people said, wait, no, we want that third-party way of changing our the behavior of our Windows. And so there was still a market for it, even after it had gone through the whole sort of Sherlocking, uh, and I say that in anachronistic scare quotes there, because this was long before the actual Sherlocking first happened, because that was Sherlock 3, which happened in later in the OS X era. Another early Unsanity Hexy was called Shadow Killer, and this was to get rid of the, again, graphics card taxing drop shadows for every window in OS X. And uh, I forgot to go through John Syracuse's, uh, you know, many detailed reviews of OS X because I think he covered how the the depth or just really how absurd <laughs> the drop shadows were from each major release of OS X because I think it's changed, like maybe the opacity or like the radius and how far the shadow reaches. Yeah, they've gotten bigger and smaller and they got toned down at one point. Um, the time that you really notice that there's, I almost don't notice that they're there anymore uh, until like iTunes freaks out or something. And I, I had this happen. I don't know, maybe it was a couple iTunes versions ago. iTunes will freak out and generate like 50 versions of the same dialog box on top of each other in exactly the same place. And then it's just surrounded by black because all of the shadows have stacked up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was it was something that was, you know, my gosh, people would have killed for drop shadows in the classic Mac. I mean, there were kaleidoscope schemes in the Kaleidoscope 2 era where people made fake drop shadows on the windows by doing dithering patterns of the window mask because you only had a one-bit mask. People wanted this so badly. And then finally, a real, true, smooth, properly composited drop shadow is on every window in OS X, and suddenly people hated it and said, get these off my windows. At least later on in OS X, um, there was one of those kind of hidden system preferences where you go into the terminal and swap a Boolean from yes to no. But this hidden system preference would only affect window shadows when captured in screenshots, not actually in your live usage of the system. So Shadow Killer may have looked like it would it would be Sherlocked by this little system preference, but it actually would be removing the shadows uh, as you use the computer. Quickly on the heels of these first two products that sort of got a name for for Unsanity and their Haxies early on, uh, they started putting out other Haxie products. And, and like I said, these were all released as individual utilities that you could download and install separately, or you could install them all and crash your system immediately. <laughs> um, the next two that they released were also really like callbacks to the way that the classic Mac OS behaved. The first of these is called Fruit Menu, uh, which makes me think of like some sort of off-brand product or like the iFruit in Foxtrot, but it was called Fruit Menu. And this was 
a reaction to the fact that in OS 10, the Apple menu did not behave the way that it used to, uh, where it used to be about this Mac and then just a open world for customization. You know, throw an alias to your hard drive in the Apple menu items folder and go crazy with your mouse trying to navigate your entire hard drive structure uh, without accidentally un uh, like undoing one of the menus and having to start over. Um, but people really loved having that quick access and customizability in the Apple menu and weren't finding uh, any of the solutions that were present in early OS X uh, up to the challenge. Like, for example, um, now you could kind of recreate that, I suppose, with like a folder in the dock uh, and have you know a stack or uh, a grid view pop out from a custom folder that either had the actual items in it or aliases in them. But that wasn't until, gee, I want to say like 10.6 or something that those features were added to the dock. So this really was kind of missing. I mean, your other option was just to, I don't know, like throw everything on the desktop or something. So people wanted this uh, this quick launching functionality of the Apple menu back. And this is precisely what Fruit Menu did. Um, I... I can't tell from the screenshots because they're very close cropped and I uh, have not been able to, I'm not even going to try to run a hacksy in an emulator <laughs> um, or like a virtual machine. Uh, it's just too much. Um, I can't remember if it actually replaced the Apple menu or sat alongside the Apple menu. And I know that this was another one of those areas where um, Unsanity and their branding uh was a little bit interesting. They always uh, they always kind of came close to some Apple brands and stuff, and Fruit Menu was one of those. I mean, obviously, they didn't call it, like, new Apple Menu or something because they knew that they would get a letter immediately. But in various iterations, it either had the Unsanity logo, which was nothing like the, the Apple Menu or the Apple logo, but then some later versions of it got a little bit bolder and had uh, basically the Apple logo, but with the bite put back in as, you know, it's like, it's a whole Apple. You can't stop us from, uh, drawing pictures of apples. Can you? Well, yes, depending. (laughs) Yeah. Towing the line for sure. The next one, uh, added back some classic Mac OS functionality that I don't know. I sure didn't miss. I didn't remember that it existed. This little haxi was called, I'm going to guess here, Zounds. (laughs) Gadzooks. <laughs> um, it, it's spelled X-O-U-N-D-S. And what this did was, I, I, like I said, I forgot this feature existed, but it added back the appearance sounds that were a feature that I think came in in maybe macOS 8.5 or macOS 9. So in the appearance manager control panel, there was a separate tab called sounds and you could turn on these various interface sounds. Uh, and there were things like little clicks and pops every time that you would drag through a menu. There were other drag actions, like if you are dragging a window around the screen or even resizing it would make a separate type of sound. And I don't know if we're going to publish this episode in stereo or not, but uh, if we do, (laughs) 
or if you go back and play with these, the drag sounds would actually pan from left to right if you dragged an icon across, back and forth across the screen. And then there was a separate sound when you finally dropped it in a folder. If you turned all of these on, it was just like, <laughs> it was like you had turned your, you know, your Mac into a bop it or something like <laughs> just click whir buzz bop pow and it was too it's too much I think um, but apparently some people really liked these um, and I guess in the early versions of OS 10 10.0 10.1 there were none of these interface sounds uh, since then Apple has actually added back some interface sounds which are enabled by default in OS 10 which blows my mind when I'm near somebody who has uh, those interface sounds still on and the speakers on and they empty the trash and there's a crinkling paper noise or they drop something in a folder and it sounds like they've um, just like let go of a spring. I mean, it's a weird little piece of the Mac interface in general that I thought was fairly well left behind with the OS 10 transition, but has actually sort of made its way back. Um, but for those who are really pining for their interface sounds, um, this Haxy did it for them. And of course, if you're thinking now about how that Haxy must have worked, where, you know, with like fruit menu, okay, you have to put a menu up in the menu bar. That's not so ridiculous. I mean, especially now, we have all kinds of menu bar apps that live on the right-hand side of our screen. I mean, most of us need Bartender to keep them all in control, and it's an officially supported part of the system to extend it in that way by having additional menus that give you useful features that Apple doesn't provide with the system, but you want to have access to from within any application. Zounds, on the other hand, though, it had to be monitoring for all of these events, like, you know, like rolling over each individual selectable menu item in a drop-down menu, regardless of whether it was in the top menu bar or in a pop-up menu, and just like polling for those system events and then being able to act on them is, you know, pretty intensive uh, and not really, uh, you know, not really something that OS X was meant to handle. You know, they, they claimed that you could get performance gains by turning on something like Shadow Killer because of, like you said, Brian, GPU issues um, or CPU if you didn't have a GPU that was actually doing the work for you. Um, but something like this is going in the opposite direction and like maybe pegging your CPU even when you don't need it. And like, who knows, was it like really well optimized or if you turned off the menu sounds, was it still like pulling every menu action? Um these were the kinds of things that would add up if you added a lot of hacksies to your system. Mm -hmm. One other early one in here that I think also speaks to just like the reactive, conservative nature of the things that drove the design decisions for hacksies is one that's called Doc Detox. And I think this was their first Jaguar hacksy because I forgot this, but apparently in 10.2, they changed the appearance of the dock. And some people, had grown used to the appearance of the dock in 10.0 and 10.1 and despised the new dock and wanted to make it look like the old one. So it would uh, do that, and it also uh, would get rid of dock bouncing, which 
some people thought was highly annoying. Um, I, I have to imagine that the number of people who were running Zounds and Doc Detox simultaneously were not very many, uh, <laughs> because if you liked those sounds, I'm sure that the bouncing would be right up your alley. And to be clear, it's not just the Doc bouncing as an application boots, but also if an application wants your attention, like a notification uh, happens, like you receive an IM and ADM. Uh, the little duck would bounce. This would turn off all the bouncing. All right, so that covers a bunch of kind of standalone little utility hacksies. At this point, the the products page on Unsanity was getting pretty crowded. And you know, you may have your opinions about uh, certainly how useful these are, but uh, I think it's impossible to deny that they were popular. They found their audience. So in the middle of 2002, Unsanity released a platform and an SDK for creating these system-level modifications, these hacksies, called Application Enhancer, or APE. And I think it must have been pronounced ape, because all the icons are apes. That makes some of the <laughs> that makes this section a little funnier. Um, one thing about ape is that it was not just a platform for Unsanity's hacksies, but it was a platform that you know any developer could download and use to create their their system level modifications. The pricing for Ape uh, kind of rose as you could afford it, basically for kind of the the hobbyist, independent, single developer, or just a user who wanted to have the the entire platform running on their machine. It was completely free. If you were a company looking to release a shareware hacksy, they uh, Unsanity would charge $100 per hacksy that you released uh, that was built on Ape. If you were a big-time commercial company, Unsanity would charge you $1,000 per hacksy. And there's even a line in here that said, shareware generating more than $10,000 of revenue per year is going to be considered commercial. We'll see in a little bit. They got that fee at least once. I love yeah, this is setting up uh, at least one very big brand. Also, I think it you know, it, I I was talking earlier and maybe we got this a little bit out of order, but like this is one of the reasons I found it so funny that later on as as Haxies were on the wane, they were so defensive that Haxy is our term when one of the things that made them, you know, exploded them to the height of their popularity was when they said, we're making this a platform and anyone can build a hacksy. They're all called hacksies. I'm not sure, you know, all the business decisions that went on here, but it's clear that it did become big business. And when you're dealing with a platform that is tinkering with like the very like close to the metal parts of your operating system, Things are liable to go wrong. Certainly a very amateur developer who just wants to kind of make their own personal maybe theme for OS X uh, might do something sloppily or, you know, like not clean up memory or something and crash their system. But what came to happen is that the entire Ape platform uh, would need to be meticulously updated for every update to the Mac OS because... It was running, like Ed was saying, like pulling for, you know, pixel by pixel changes to where your cursor is on a menu. Uh, you know, if, if, if a single line item of code in the OS changes, that could throw off the entire platform. 
And there are very many reasons to believe that this is something that actually happened. Right. And, you know, if if you want to think about this, this platform was almost like jailbreaking your Mac in some respect, you know, not in the sense that it was prohibited by any like software license or any of the actual you know, security controls of the system. It was all open, you know, Mac OS 10.0 slash system. I mean, sure, you can go in there if you want. You're just going to like, there's nothing you can do in there that will be productive unless you're, you know, unless you're really super clever, like Unsanity. But even then, you, you know, make one wrong turn and the whole system is coming crashing down. Um, and Haxies and Ape got a reputation for that to the point that they were, uh, trying to disclaim this on their website. Uh, They said, application enhancers cannot affect the core system, despite the fact that they're installed in slash system. We'll get to that in a second. Oh, yeah. They operate on an application level. Therefore, they cannot cause a whole macOS 10 system to crash. Well, no, they operate on an application level. But, you know, as we know, the OS 10 model is the Unix-based model, which is a process model. And they weren't really operating on the application level. It's not just like, oh, well, this is going to, you know, this is going to crash Safari and then whatever, I'll relaunch Safari. It's like, this is going to crash, um, you know, Windows Server, or this is going to to crash uh, Core Audio D, or this is going to crash some process that it's trying to muck around in its memory. And yeah, it's not going to cause a kernel panic because it's not actually a kernel extension, but it can cause damage that, you know, or crashes that to the user seemed just as severe, or in some cases, actually more severe. So it all kind of came crashing down for Ape with the release of macOS 10.5 Leopard. There were many, many user reports of a specific pattern of system crashes, which is after installing uh, Leopard, when your system would reboot, you would get a blue screen. This is what a lot of the reports say. And because it's happening during the boot process, there aren't really good screenshots. I think we've covered this a couple of times on the show that uh, you go looking for this and you find people who have, with a digital camera, taken photos of their screen. And it's even hard to find some of these, but it's not the Windows blue screen of death where there's that kind of old DOS system font, you know, uh, spitting out an error code. This is basically your system would go through the gray screen with the Apple and then under a a good Leopard install, move to the kind of aqua blue screen and then render uh, like the little dialog box with a progress bar on it that said starting up, you know, maybe some other things about that. What in the classic Mac OS would say, like your extensions were loading and the little icons would go across the screen. What it sounds like is that if you had a mildly old version of the Ape platform installed in your system before you upgraded to Leopard, your Mac on the the restart from the install would get to just this blue screen after the gray screen with the Apple and hang. And that sucks. That particular blue, it's interesting um, that it carried over into Leopard because Leopard was the first of the big cats in space um, that had the sort of, you know, like 
wispy star matter nebula um, desktop background. And all of the versions before that had these aqua blue, swirly, swoopy backgrounds. And that blue that you saw on boot was it was like just like the average blue. It was like if you took took those desktops and just like ran a 20,000 pixel blur over them and just calculated the average blue because that could be drawn really fast before the system actually went and loaded in the image. And so it was still using that routine in Leopard and whatever was going on before that the operating system was ready to draw your desktop background ape got in the way somehow and so eventually uh ape was figured out to be the culprit and the fallout was bad this is kind of what this episode has been building towards uh haxies and haxies built slash distributed on ape became known as the things that would completely wreck your system there is an email from the apple developer technical support email list that is still on apple.com, lists.apple.com to be specific. We'll put a link in the show notes where one of their uh, developer technical support representatives, George Warner, speaks on behalf of Apple in response to an email titled, Distributed Object and Run Loops I Didn't Start. <laughs> this developer writes in and says, This has been running fine until User X shows up. User X has Unsanity's Ape installed. When they run my application, UI element application hangs. Right. See, this is th- this is why I was saying, oh, yeah, we can't crash any anything more than an application. No, we can crash anything that has a UI element in it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, George's response to this developer begins, our, in parentheses, Apple's official policy is that we don't support aped systems. That's A-P-E apostrophe D systems, period. <laughs> the data miner that parses all the crash logs that are sent to us automatically ignores any report that has ape APIs in the backtraces or uh, DYLB lists. So like if you, if you're a user and you've done this to your system, we know that that's the fault and we're not going to help you like fix that first. You know how the default response from Apple and in the community now is if you have a crash file a radar, they're basically saying don't file a radar. In fact, we're literally ignoring all of this. This is like the software equivalent of voiding your warranty. That's a great way to put it. We've been talking about Unsanity's product page for uh, their various hacksies and at various um, states of capture on the Internet Archive. And there is a great page um, that's kind of a sub page of the Ape SDK area of Unsanity's website. And uh, there's a capture that is clearly um, from the time after OS X Leopard was released, which is a grid of all of Unsanity's products and which version of Mac OS X they're compatible with. And the column for Leopard on this page, it was captured in October 2007, has one green dot for the Haxi chat transcript manager, and every other dot is red for Leopard. None of these Unsanity products, Haxi or Ape or otherwise, were compatible with Leopard. The other thing about this, though, is that we said that the particularly nasty bug where like your whole system wouldn't start up after you installed an operating system update was really only if you had a slightly out-of-date version of Ape running on your system. And you would think that the type of people who were keen on installing Haxies 
would be the kind of people who would be always looking for updates, always looking for new things, uh, always keeping their software uh, on the latest and greatest, and this wouldn't affect them. So how how did so many people wind up having out-of-date ape on their systems? Well, maybe if they didn't know that it was there in the first place. That's right. We talked about how the ape SDK was able to be licensed out to, uh, as Unsanity put it, commercial partners, people who make over $10,000 a year in revenue. Well, one of those partners was Logitech maker of mice keyboards and other input devices that often needed their own custom drivers to take full advantage of the hardware in Mac OS X. And at some point during the, the run of the Ape SDK, Logitech's uh, control center drivers either bundled or built part of the driver on the Ape SDK. So if you bought a certain vintage Logitech mouse or Logitech keyboard or other input device and were using the software that came with it, as you would be expected to do, you surreptitiously installed whatever version came with that uh, input device of the Ape SDK on your system and did not know it because it wasn't called that. It was, it was under the guise of your Logitech drivers. Logitech makes great mice and have been known for developing the absolute worst software for OS X using the worst possible practices. Um, and I would know because I have some of their products. <laughs> I don't think that I ever had one in this era when, uh, when they were aping people's systems. Um, we'll link to a great uh, article on Daring Fireball from when this was discovered, uh, including, uh, I mean... John Gruber can take him down uh, far better than I can, but he goes off on Logitech, quote, It's utterly absurd and completely irresponsible for Logitech to base their mouse software on a completely and utterly unsupported by Apple system software modification. And yeah, they got called out for that. And so what did they decide to do by the time that I bought a Logitech mouse? How about they wrote their own kernel extension that led to kernel panics? Every day until you uninstalled it and used it as a dumb, ordinary USB or Bluetooth mouse. Ugh. The one useful thing that came out of this this Logitech debacle is that Apple, up until now, their position was just like, we ain't touching that. You did a dumb thing. Don't come, don't come to us. But when they realized that this was being propagated by a company that they didn't want to piss off um that was you know it, uh, you know like i said they make good hardware and have partnered with apple in the past and apple may even still sell some of their products who knows so they actually gave instructions on how to fix this situation um if you got into this blue screen situation your only recourse was basically to uh boot into single user mode which gives you a terminal prompt and then uh go in there and literally just excise the portions of the system that had been modified by Ape. And they initially said to remove four files. Um, and interestingly, three of these were in slash library and one of them was in slash system. And then they modified the instructions. They realized you only had to get rid of, you only had to RM-RF in single user mode. Don't type it wrong. 
slash system slash library slash system configuration slash application enhancer dot bundle. And this is the thing. It's like, what is in there? Nobody knows. Like, it's not an app, but it's effectively an app. Like, at this point in OS ten, dot app and dot bundle, were, they're, they're the same thing. It's just a question of how the system is going to treat them. And the fact that Ape had put this in here meant that this code, this application code was running at boot, which was not a good idea. Explains why the crash happened where it did. Right. And then one of the other things that they suggested to remove that wound up not to be critical was the application enhancer framework. And you said like calling private APIs. This is the difference like I, I, th- I think that people don't necessarily understand what the issue is with calling private APIs in iOS or in macOS now. It's not like calling private APIs is an inherently dangerous thing to do in a particular version of the operating system. And the APIs, at least some of them, aren't private because Apple is being mean and not sharing them with developers. I mean, some of them are for security reasons, like, you know, some API that modifies data in your iCloud account or something um, is private for security reasons. But some of them are private just because Apple knows how the operating system works and you don't. And they know how co-involved and convoluted that particular API is with the rest of the system, and they're not willing to commit to being this way for the next five years. Mm -hmm. So they say, this is private, this is reserved for Apple use, because we might change this. And if we change it, and you're using it, things will break. We know where we're using it, so if we change it, we will, hopefully, change our use of it in all of those places such that nothing breaks. And what happened here was a case of effectively API is being injected into the system through these various means, and then whatever they were calling on the other end wasn't there anymore. But they had gotten so worked into it that they were in the boot process, and that that was enough to bring down your system and to bring down Ape's reputation. We don't want to solely trash Haxies and the Ape SDK because, uh, like we said, a lot of people did find utility or maybe just, you know, like aesthetic pleasure in them. So uh, there were some unsanity first party Haxies that were built and released on the Ape platform uh, that we thought were worth discussing on the show as well. You know, if things hadn't gotten out of hand, <laughs> the, these would be more fondly remembered. Um, you know, in the way that we remember and did two episodes on Kaleidoscope, um, a lot of these are interface changes. Um, and people loved these kind of apps. And there were apps like, you know, like Candy Bar from the Icon Factory that would do these things in a more safe and responsible way. Yeah. And the fact that uh, some of these utilities got wrapped up in the whole ape debacle has, has uh, you know, colored our opinion of them. But they were cool at the time. The first one I want to talk about is one called Metallifizer. And it was a hacksy to kind of make the use of brushed metal in the OS X uh, interface more consistent, I think. I bet that was the goal because I think John Gruber has covered this. John Syracuse has covered this in his OS X reviews. I think Stephen Hackett 
kind of anthropomorphized the brush metal in a series on 512 pixels. We will link to the uh, the brush metal diaries. The rise and fall of brush metal's uh, appearance in OS 10 is well documented. And this was a hacksy to add or subtract it from different parts of the interface, maybe windows or controls, etc. Um, I wanted to discuss this because I never used uh, the Ape platform or any of Unsanity or anybody else's hacksies. I did, however, use a very similar program to Metallifizer. I keep having this struggle on that name. Metallifizer uh, called Uno. And this, I remember this was released, I think, in advance of OS 10.4 Tiger, where the actual brushed metal texture was removed from the interface. And, you know, like screenshots were released before the software was. And people said, like, oh, I want that. It looks so clean. Oh, I get it. It's uh, it's a pun on the, the unified window appearance, Uno. Exactly. Um, so I definitely downloaded this uh, this Uno app and... A worthwhile distinction between Uno and Haxies is uh, <laughs> arguable whether it's safer or not, but Uno actually had its own, uh, I don't know, pattern resources or whatever the system used to uh, uh, draw brushed metal. Uno would actually swap those files out of your install with their own uh, unified patterns or gradients or, or color definitions so it would modify your system install the one time and then you know the next time you rebooted the system would just load those resources instead of brushed metal and it's it's a risky operation to be sure but it only does it once <laughs> and at the time of install it knows where to do it so there's no risk of breaking things uh so i felt safe running uno until i got my own copy of tiger yeah, this was another one of those cases, though, you know, with adding or subtracting brush metal, where it was a polarizing design choice. And some people were like, oh my gosh, I have to have it everywhere. And it wasn't everywhere yet. And that's more like Uno. Um, and some people were like, oh my gosh, this is the ugliest thing that I've ever seen. Get it off my Mac. Um, and apparently Metallifizer would let you go either way. Another uh, minor interface tweak that was available as a Haxi is called Silk. Um, it says that it offers silky smooth quartz text rendering. Um, and, well, interestingly, this is uh, something that Apple is apparently still struggling with to this very day, is uh, how exactly to render text, especially at small sizes, doing anti-aliasing. Um, if you listen to the Accidental Tech Podcast, you've probably heard Marco go on long rants about uh, how his uh, LCD font smoothing preference doesn't work the way that he wants it to in High Sierra. And then it was uh, finally explained what he was seeing that nobody else was seeing, and then everybody was ruined. Myself included, by the way. Yeah, it, it can be bad. Font, font rendering is weird. Um, like, I was, um, I was working on a document in Pages uh, the other day, and I had two copies of what were the same text in the same font. And I'm looking back and forth between them going, these are both lotto, regular, 11 point. They're both at 150% zoom. They're both solid black. Why does one look slightly different than the other? And the reason was because in one of the files... 
I had an image that was in the like master template of the file in the to put it at the like far background. And as soon as I copied that image into the new document and moved it into the background, all the text rendering changed and they looked the same. Like, come on. (laughs) So this is ongoing. um, But uh, people have always wanted their text to look good. um, And Silk promised that using the advanced features of Quartz, which still stick around. And um, yeah, maybe Marco needs a Haxi. I'm sure he would love to open up his system to Ape. (laughs) We'll get to the the real downfall of this towards the end, but this is completely impossible now uh, to to try to pull something like this in High Sierra. There were a whole bunch of other little hacksies that got released in this time. Uh, One that brought the functionality of classic labels to early OS X, of course, now long superseded by actual finder tags. Uh, Something called Menu Extra Enabler, again, Menu extras are now fully enabled. Menu master, which allowed you to set up uh, custom keyboard shortcuts for menu items now in your keyboard system preference pane. One called Mighty Mouse that was not related to either the Apple hardware or the cartoon character, although in later versions had a definitely close to trademark infringing superhero mouse. (laughs) as its icon. Um, It was just for like cursor customization. So you could make, you know, crazy mouse cursors. There was something called Safari No Time Out that was supposed to address a particular bug in Safari. And then finally, the big one, uh, probably the biggest and most interesting hacksy of them all. Yes, we're talking about Shapeshifter, which uh, the tagline on Unsanity's Shapeshifter page is change the look of your Mac temporarily and forever (laughs) exclamation point i really don't know what that means maybe it's like you can revert it if it's breaking your system yeah uh but yeah shapeshifter is basically kaleidoscope for os 10 and i'd also referenced candy bar uh production by the icon factory and panic earlier it was full appearance customization of the mac os 10 interface certainly the system ui things like uh, the window chrome, you know, way more than just the metallifizer brushed metal options. Um, there were full icon set replacements and uh, also cursors handled within Shapeshifter, though it probably is just reusing the Mighty Mouse Haxi or the Haxi's core code. And uh, I don't think it ever reached the full community strength that Kaleidoscope had with however many uh, scheme authors and scheme creators there were, but it definitely had a solid following. There was a uh, a site called Mac Themes that uh, not only cataloged a bunch of shapeshifter themes, but actually reviewed them and kind of assigned scores and promoted certain ones. And uh, this was brought to our attention recently in a tweet from friend of the show, Phil Dokus. So we'll, we'll put a link to the Internet Archives version of Mac Themes. Particularly of note with Mac Themes, one of the people behind it was Phil Ryu. I'm very sorry if I've continued to say this name incorrectly, because uh, this is someone who's big in kind of this era of the Mac community. We covered his work on My Dream app in episode 34 of this show, and he's also one of the people behind The Heist, which was another big Mac and iOS app during this time. 
And in looking through Mac themes, I found that a lot of the highlighted ones and the ones that got reviews um, seem to follow a theme of trying to emulate other interfaces. There were kind of tweaks to Aqua or being able to revert your 10.3, 10.4 install back to like uh, public beta with very heavy pinstripe Aqua. There were also, um, of course, there was a shapeshifter theme to make your Mac look like Windows XP. <laughs> there were a couple themes that tried to make your Mac look like uh, kind of early era PDA with that kind of original Game Boy olive green <laughs> color. Or like a very early iPod screen. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, with With that green and a lot of grays on top. So like a lot of kind of functional themes and not so much of the wacky experimental kaleidoscope schemes that uh, we discussed in our episode and continue to see on the kaleidoscope schemes Twitter account. Two main things that really prevented there from being just like the sheer number and and breadth of schemes that we saw with kaleidoscope and especially with kaleidoscope 2 is the fact that with shapeshifter it was not as simple to get into scheming and i mean even in in the kaleidoscope 2 era it could be a little bit uh could be a little bit tricky to define how your windows were supposed to be created but the basic you know the basic crux of it was you could say hey i want to tweak a scheme that i already have just copy the file open it up with resedit that you already have a free copy of go in and say, hey, I want to make the close box look different. Go in there, open up the resource, draw some stuff, close it, save, double-click that new scheme file, and you could see it in action. Um, and that let a lot of people with just like very basic ResEdit knowledge get into it. Um, whereas with Shapeshifter, creating and bundling up these schemes, or um, whatever they called them, themes, <laughs> um, was a lot more difficult. Um, I don't even know, were they using PDF resources at this point? Like the way that Quartz was composing the windows? I never really got into creating shapeshifter themes, but I heard that it was a little bit tricky. Some people did try to port their kaleidoscope schemes over to shapeshifter. Um, so you might even spot a couple familiar ones on some of the uh, the resources and catalogs of themes that we'll link in the show notes. And one of the other things that was limiting was some of the most popular Kaleidoscope 2 schemes couldn't even be ported over to Shapeshifter because one of the limitations was that you couldn't actually change the outline of the window. So you had a certain number of pixels to work within, kind of like it was in the Kaleidoscope 1 days, where you got that platinum window border to work in and no more. That meant that there are some that have some, like, tiny little little tweaks to the window border like there's one where there's like a little indent by where the uh the window controls are but that's just making a few handful of transparent pixels is all that it's doing there you couldn't build onto the window in any way you could only subtract um so you would never get you know some of the really flamboyant schemes your boiler plates and your um isa shock whatever it was called um or those schemes that tried to make drop shadows with with dithered masks like none of that was possible so even though it was the most customization that was possible for the overall OS 10 interface um i think that 
it left a little bit to be desired, especially for people who really liked the, you know, just the amount of power and creativity that Kaleidoscope had offered previously. Kind of addressing the difficulty of creating these themes, there was a feature of Shapeshifter added in version 2.2 that Unsanity called GUI Tweak, which is a uh, camel cased. So that's like the GUI is all lowercase and the T is capital. GUI Tweak let the end user of Shapeshifter who had already found some themes they wanted and installed them on their system, modify the GUI kit files in those themes using core image filters, which basically to me sounds like the kind of late stage Audion feature where you could change the primary color of a skin, even if the developer shipped kind of a translucent olive green skin that made your MP3 player look like a pager, you could go into the Audion preferences and make that green pager a translucent uh, pink. And it sounds like this GUI tweak in Shapeshifter was a similar thing that made its kind of limited selection of themes still more customizable on the basis of the primary color in each theme. I wanted to mention that the company Interacto, which made the Uno system add-on to uh, get rid of brushed metal, also had their own stab at complete macOS 10 theming called Flavors and spelled with the U in Flavors. And uh, the website for Flavors is still live. You can go to it. We'll put a link in the show notes. And they talk a little bit about uh, their approach, which makes it sound like Flavors, when it worked, (laughs) took the approach of Uno in that it straight up modified system resources so that when the system called upon them to draw a window or, or whatever, it kept pulling from the same new file rather than trying to hijack a, a process and, and override how the system drew it every time. Right. Somewhere deep in the bowels of the system are actual little, I believe, PDF resources that determine the appearance of Windows. Um, and it was it was swapping those out. It was actually, I think it had an option to make a backup copy of everything. Um I installed that and talked about it briefly on episode two or three of this very show. I think so. And I felt like it was about to break everything, and I very quickly uninstalled it. Um, Again, none of the elegance of something like the Kaleidoscope extension, um, because to get the system to call upon those newly uh, swapped out resources and swapped out in sort of the, you know, like Indiana Jones with the bag of sand kind of way. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So to do that, you would have to basically, I mean, I guess you would basically just have to start windows server over. Um, you might've been able to do like, I, I don't think even like kill all dash M doc would, um, would be enough. And so it was like, okay, I wanted to switch my theme. Okay, restart your Mac. And it's like, oh, that's 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 not a fun experience. And um and and that was part of the thing that concerned me. It's like, oh, I've like changed all this stuff and then I go to restart and what happens if I get stuck on the gray screen because something has gone horribly wrong. Um it it really put the fear in me. Um of course, Apple went ahead and put the fear in them um, because uh, they're very clear about the fact that uh, this only works in Yosemite 
And that's because in El Capitan, system integrity protection was uh, included in the operating system for the first time. And that means that the operating system is not going to just go and blindly load in whatever file is at a particular path down in the system folder, because who knows what you put in there to cause some, you know, buffer overrun and take control of the entire system. It's going to go in there and go, this is a very beautiful file, but the checksum does not match and I will not run it. I particularly love this line from their FAQ that basically discusses this, the state of their theming application and by extension, all theming applications on the Mac uh, is that they won't work as of El Capitan and the system integrity protection. This line says, uh, the new security policy prevents every process, even privileged ones, from modifying system ref- system files, either on file system or dynamically at runtime. Feels like it's a little subtle jab at the Ape SDK. Yeah, it's a shame that these are uh, you know, really and truly dead. I mean, when we recorded episode two, they weren't really and truly dead. Um, but now they are. And, you know, some of these are, are you know, really classy and look good. And it would be nice if uh, if there were some ways to to do some really tasteful customization of, of the operating system, both on, heck, both on the Mac and on iOS. So that kind of is the end of the line, not just for flavors, not just for Shapeshifter, but we really haven't seen anything in the way of Haxies or the Ape SDK since around that time. I guess the one thing to uh, wrap up then is that, yeah, we've declared that the era of the Haxie is over. Well, really, Apple has declared that. They were they were not not keen on them even when they were popular, and now they are, are truly impossible. But the, the thing that uh, is still kind of an outstanding question is, well, whatever happened to Unsanity then? Because they were the Haxie company. There's a thread on Ars Technica that uh, asks this question, what happened to Unsanity? And, uh, you know, there's a little bit of discussion. One of the points being that this co-founder we've discussed in this episode, Slava Karpenko, is active on Twitter, is actively working for a software development company, and retains, I think, domain registrations <laughs> in his name that that point back to Unsanity and some of the hacksies and Shapeshifter. But uh, other than that, it seems like any software, any new hacksies, anything coming out from the Unsanity name will not happen. Yeah, they've just kind of uh, let it run its natural course and uh, fade away. Uh, neither of us were very big <laughs> on hacksies or the Ape SDK. Well, I, I think by the time that I really knew what was going on, I was a little bit scared. And I didn't mention this earlier when we talked about it, Window Shade. I really wanted Window Shade back in OS X, but I was a high schooler and I was too cheap to pay $7 shareware to get it back. So I just got used to minimizing Windows. Kind of saved you from yourself. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think I really would have gone down the Haxi road if uh, if I had uh, shelled out those $7. Uh, so if any of you listeners have screenshots or stories from this era. We would love to see them. Yeah, I mean, especially because, you know, it was easy enough to go through and see the first party Unsanity Haxies nicely preserved by the Wayback Machine. And of course, we'll link to those in the show notes. Uh, but there was this whole world of them out there. So if there are any that we missed that you fondly remember, uh, please send us any information that you have. You can uh, always send us a message 
especially if it's longer, through our website at simplebeep.com. There's a contact form there. Um, or I guess you can send us uh, longer messages now on Twitter, too, up to 280. Uh, and you can find the show there at simple underscore beep. We're also individually on Twitter. I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at ecormony. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.